Well, um, welcome, Sid Hiskey. Um, I'm delighted to have you join me, actually, as I say, for what happens to be the first Compassion in a T-shirt in session. So, you know, and I'm particularly delighted to, um, to chat with you, not, not just as a CFT therapist, but really, you know, as a good friend. And, and um, in fact, the idea of, of Compassion in a T-shirt in session really is to get a chance to, to you know, chat with people around the world, friends who I've met along the way in, in amongst you know, the, the whole CFT, Compassionate Mind Foundation sorts of things. So um, yeah, lucky me, I thought, in terms of all of that. But um, yeah, I think we met in 2017. Would that uh, be? Yeah, right? I think you're right. 16, 17, something like that. 16, 17. I think it was at the Manchester yeah. CMF conference. So it's it's been a, a few years. We didn't get to catch up last year, um, no. but um, but yeah, it, it, I, I, I'm really looking forward to having a bit of bit of a chat. How, how are you feeling? What do you think? Uh, likewise, when you mentioned this recently, I was thinking, oh crikey, yeah. Most of all, more than anything else, it'd just be good to see you again. Find yeah. out how you you know how you are, what you're up to been a really really tricky 18 months for everybody i guess mm. a year at least so yeah an opportunity to catch up uh this the compassion and mind foundation conference each year is a really good chance to just see old friends again as you said That's yeah what i like about the group really it's much more like a friend a group of friends and family really rather than just a group of academics or clinicians so yeah yeah we'll just uh we'll have a chat see how it goes yeah we'll, we'll see how it goes yeah we'll uh, we'll uh i've got a few sort of questions here but I, I am hoping yeah that we just sort of bounce back and forward and, and see how we're all going but yeah so I, I wondered first of all actually whether you could just tell us a little bit about yourself perhaps your work or your life and and that sort of thing maybe even you know currently what's interesting you or exciting you um, at the moment um, a little bit about me. Okay, so I'm in my early 50s. I live in the southeast of England. Um, I worked for the NHS, National Health Service in the UK for uh, many years, 15 mm. plus years. Uh, mm. I was a consultant in the latter part of that end of my career um, and really enjoyed that work, but found it left me more people managing, service development, strategic thinking, all that kind of stuff, which was great. But not yeah. really how I saw the, the next half of my career go. So I moved into yeah. independent practice a few years ago, okay. um, which I'd always been doing in the background, but it allowed me to focus much, much more on CFT, really, mm. uh, which is just a remarkable development. Um, mm. In terms of my background, I, I came to the whole thing late in the day, really. I come mm. from a, a really traditional uk white british my old family background you left school kind of go get a job you know <clears throat> i think in the school i went to two kids went to university each year okay. something like that so it was a really you know not not usually the done thing yeah. bimbled about in different jobs and things and then eventually got to university by by the time i was 28 so i was a little mm. bit of a late really mm. um but really enjoyed academia and managed to kind of sew together still just about um, clinical and academic life. So um, it's another, another good thing about CFT really, it allows me to do that. Mm. Um, so within that, is there any particular bit you want to find out a bit well, more I was, about? I was curious there, what, what you did up until 28? What, what, was, what sort of jobs were you uh, doing there? Um, well, my passion as a kid was always art. So I was always scribbling, drawing, etc. So I had, had ideas yeah. that I might, and it might be an illustrator, I'm not sure, to yeah. be honest. I was nowhere near strong enough in terms of those skills. Yep. Some of the kids out there were just fantastic. But I got to art college, which was great. Right. I found my, my niche was graphic design. So I had an eye for design, which was good. Hmm. Um, but in those days, uh, mid to late 80s, work like that, and there's a recession in this country as well, it's quite hard to find. And the family business had been printing, newspaper and magazine printing. So I sort of fell into the pre-production side of that, which was less the design side and more the um, everything before it gets printed side. So the design mm. side of that. And I moved around in that for a few years, which was okay. Mm. But um, the last few years were, were essentially factory work. And because 
Mm. Uh, I didn't have many qualifications. I had to do um, full-time night shifts to then mm. go to night school before I went to work, that kind of thing, for a few years to get the qualifications to go to uni. Yeah. Um, I just couldn't see myself stuck in a, in a factory for the rest, mm. of, uh, rest of my day. So, uh, yeah, it was all that, really, combination of that stuff, just being mm. curious about uni. When I first went, I think it was more about have I got any chance of actually being able to complete a course rather than I'm going to be a psychologist or I'm going to do this. My um, my undergraduate degree was applied psychology and sociology, so I was quite interested in social science broadly. Mm. And then it began to coalesce into the individual family systems, that kind of stuff. Mm. So, yeah, I um, I was bimbling around, really, just enjoying my teens and early early 20s, not doing much. It, not it's interesting. It, it, it is interesting though, you know, like you, you sort of look at that and, and those are the sort of experiences that, that we all kind of start to develop certain qualities, you know, like obviously creativity and playfulness is in there. Um, you know, there, there's sort of hard work and determination and commitment to certain things. There was even that willingness and courage to, to sort of take a bit of a risk, you know, you, you weren't actually sure what was going to happen if you went off to uni but but you know there you were these different kind of qualities and and i always find it fascinating you know even just talking to people about just their experiences and what they've been through and how we can start to see these qualities emerging um early on and so um i think we're sort of the same then i i work in a private practice as well and and you're seeing sort of individual clients and how does that work in the UK? Um, right. So ever, ever since I first started in the NHS, I always had a small private practice running alongside. So just a few clients here and there. Um, yeah. Typically, colleagues who might be doing some work in the private sector as well might say, look, are you, are you seeing people privately? So it just trickled along in the background. And I did a little bit of medical legal work as well, report writing, that kind of stuff too. Yep accident reports that that sort of thing so that was always there in the background and, and then my kids had come around at the same time and then essentially it just continued to grow mm. um i i quite like it I, I suppose it's fair to say i've always been fairly industrious that made my dad cry with laughter he used to tell me how you know feckless i was as a teenager <laughs> schlepping around not doing much but there's always been a fairly strong work ethic in the family and, yeah. and so i've always tried to be fairly busy and I guess because of that, it just continued to grow and grow. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, I do see mostly individual clients, um, do do some couple work, occasionally I work with family systems, It really, but it's usually through the lens of the individual, to be honest. So it's all mm. about their needs expressed within the family. Um, yeah, and as I said, it just continued to grow over time till it got to a tipping point where um, my wife, bless her, pretty much turned around and said, look, you can't keep chasing both of these things. Which, which one are you going to do? Um, <laughs> Just, enough's you know, enough yeah yeah just you know and but you fall into it was the thing and, and yeah. the research and academic side as well there's so much out there that you can be doing i've always mm. um always loved that about this kind of job it's a gift really mm. so yeah it's um it moved into that and then since being full-time um just doing this yeah a lot of a lot of individual therapy work for mm. a whole range of issues as well from what we might in public services consider to be relatively um, milder issues all the way to severe and enduring complex mental health problems as well. So yeah, really, really good spread actually. Mm. Is that true for yourself as well? Does it tend to work like that or? Yes, I think so. We have very much a mixture of public and private in Australia. And, and so we have, uh, for example, um, Queensland Health has, I've been employed by them before the public sector health department and worked in mental health and, and psychiatry so, and alcohol and, and drug and other sorts of uh, specific kind of agencies within that. And then we have quite a, a vibrant private sector as well with some private health insurance and also the government now too um, offers Medicare for clinical psychology and private practice. So people can have, actually, I think it's now up to 20 sessions with a private clinical psychologist to um, uh, to sort of access treatment and you're right yeah very much the spread of of a range of of pr presentations and and you know sadly in a way um very busy at the moment and in fact the the sector here is uh struggling with uh waiting lists and um 
you know, kind of finding people being able to find a clinical psych or a psychologist um, at at the moment. So it's, it's, it's actually one that I've been grappling with in, in a, you know, on the work front, how to deal with waiting lists. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, when, when you suss that one out, let me know. I'll let you know. Well, it's exactly the same problem. I'm finding that. Yeah. Oh, we go into that too much about the, the, the work side of things unless you want to but it's really difficult because when people present it in my experience locally at least the mm. level of need is quite high at that point people don't come along to explore whether or not they're beginning to struggle and, and you could look into a therapy they normally come along when everything else they've tried hasn't worked or they're, mm. they're just really in a tough place so to then turn somebody away and say look i can't see you for several months or mm. um I may not be able to see you at all. It's really difficult. So I yeah. try and sign pe- signpost people on wherever I can, but um, because of the pandemic and the amount of need that that's uncovered, uh, that's really quite a tough one. Yeah. Uh, and as a group, I think we need to be better at addressing that because I struggle with that. I'm not sure what the best thing to do is. Yes, we, we might even think about um, some sort of, you know, kind of compassion-based interventions in the interim, you know, mm-hmm. because one of the things that, can sometimes happen is if someone is on a waiting list then they tend to wait and and you know that therefore not really change in a sense in some ways it's worse to be on a waiting list and, and just wait than it is to perhaps you know continue to, to look elsewhere or, or something so it, it is interesting to think how how we might be able to utilize that time in in other ways but Yes, well, I mean, there's there's so much to talk about, but uh, I did want to check in with you about all things compassion, because you you mentioned there that a lot of your work is is compassion focused therapy and and um, and your research work and other things that that you do. But um, you know, tell tell us a bit about your journey to compassion and and self compassion and and maybe even the, the compassion focused therapy thing. Like, how did you? discover it or stumble across it or find it or something i think <laughs> i think stumbling is the way to go on that one uh, i've done a lot of stumbling really in a good yeah. way yeah this thing again sort of drifting along um so for me i thought about this um yeah. in terms of us talking i thought well, okay how far back does this go mm. and my dad uh, again funnily enough makes comment at times about sort of coming out of the womb talking in a way. So I was quite a talkative <laughs> kid. Yeah, you know, really talking a lot as a kid. So I've always been interested in just people, really, in relationships. That's always been there. And mm. very early memories of care and being cared for. Really, you know, parts of my childhood, that some people have very, very good memories of their childhood. Mine's reasonable, but the bits I remember really are those bits. Mm. And then there's some formative bits in terms of, martial arts and stuff that we'll come on to too but mm. those experiences of, of care really stuck with me and I think probably under uh, informed in the background my decision to shift career essentially it was because it, it wasn't interpersonal or interactive enough it was yeah. more productive you know it was about yeah. producing things rather than being with people and I love the guys I worked with but I you know wanted some deeper more sustaining relationships I guess and psychology mm. seemed to offer that anyway so um getting to uni originally I was going to be an, uh, an academic psychologist was my plan right so straight from my undergraduate years I moved into um into a PhD looking at post-traumatic stress mm. which was well, actually just before that and my um uh so at the end of my undergraduate years my my undergraduate dissertation um I got the opportunity to go to Namibia for two months and um study mm. a tribe of um sand um, Bushmen out there in mm. terms of their, their color language. So, mm. so linguistic relativity. And my time out there, living out there with those guys and a couple of anthropologists really underscored this idea that the community they're very, very big on your wealth is your relationships with others. So it really mm. kind of got me thinking. So then when I moved into um, PTSD and, and academic psychology, mm. what came through again and again and again, one of the most protective factors I kept coming uh, up in or coming up against really Mm. was about connectedness to other people Mm. so within about the first year or so of my studies I pretty much decided I need to do something applied it's Mm. one thing to generate theory etc but I really want to work hands-on with people and the best route I could see to doing that was to then do the doctorate in clinical psychology afterwards 
Oh. So I did a year in the NHS, yeah. So I did a year in the NHS as a, an assistant in child and family, again, very systemic, mm. and then moved into um, clinical doctorate. And the doctorate itself is a slightly long-winded story, I'm afraid, but the doctorate itself was great, but the focus all seemed to be on the individual again. A lot oh. of individual therapy, analytic psychotherapy, CBT. There was a module on systemic thinking as well, which was great, um, but it felt sort of underplayed or smaller. So all mm. the time there's interest in people, systems, how they work together. So when I completed as uh, that course, in those days really, the, the route as I saw it was into neuropsychology. I was very interested in working with older people in particular. Mm. And in this country, if you work in older people's services, you end up doing quite a lot of neuropsychology, memory assessments, mm. that kind of stuff. Mm. But also individual CBT, so that seemed to be the, the where the evidence base was taking me. And my time in CBT, certainly within the first few years, showed me quite clearly, look, there are gaps, there's holes in this model. It's not, you know, yeah. I think we have some pretty good CBT, but people aren't necessarily getting the recovery or the effectiveness from the therapy that we'd hoped for. And of course you go through a long phase of thinking, well, am I doing this right? And then, you know, you, you train with lots of different people and you come across similar themes as well. You think, no, I'm pretty sure we're, you know, we're having a good go at this. And uh -huh. so we then began to look into further and wider therapies. And as part of that, while I was doing some um, dedicated CBT training, I came across Chris Irons. Uh -huh. And as you know Chris very well, Chris brilliantly kind of understated his role in CFT at this point. We were just chatting away. And then in the latter part of that course, Debbie Lee came in to teach us about CFT. The course was really, really good to their credit. It was a CBT course, but they expanded it out into, at that time, what were probably thought of as third wave CBT therapies. Mm. So something on ACT and CFT and various different things. And the CFT just, I don't know, I, I don't know what to tell you. I went into that lecture and came out with a kind of silly grin on my face, really just thinking, hang on a sec, this stuff mm. makes a lot of sense. Mm. So it seemed to um, not just plug gaps, but really make sense in terms of conceptual and theoretical understanding of how we tick a bit more. Mm. From then, I then started getting involved in the in the CFT conference scene. So just as an attendee, and mm. <clears throat> I think I presented a poster, one of the early ones, and then started running a special interest group in the region for clinicians into CFT. So mm. <clears throat> every couple of months since then, so about February 2012, we meet and then talk about all things CFT. Mm. So it's kind of expanded from there, really. Mm. Uh, it's and, interesting and because it's yeah. what was that last bit? It seems to be snowballing. It seems to be kind of, yeah. you know, interest mm. in this growing. So that's good. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 it's, it's the sort of intrapersonal, interpersonal and group kind of elements of CFT by the sounds of it that really filled a bit of a gap rather than it being this sort of in, more individualistic kind of working inside the person. You know, how can we build upon relationships and how can we build upon caring relationships and, and that that actually you know sort of not in a conscious way but it just that was just part of your early life in a sense was that that notion of not only relate, relating to each other but care being a part of that yeah. and and you know so you in fact the bit that you liked about your factory work was kind of that that bit you know the the blokes you know on on the line or whatever <laughs> you describe it um you know that was you, you kind of liked them that was an, a, an affiliative kind of relationship oh it's hilarious yeah yeah great place to be yeah yeah exactly but, yeah. and then you sort of really started searching for um, you know, how can this? How, where, where can I find that that notion of interpersonal, systemic caring for one another, affiliating, belonging together, and 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 well, you stumbled across it in a, a, a sort of a pretty perfect way with Chris Irons and Deborah Lee, I guess. You know, that sort of sounds oh, yeah. about right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I completely lucked out. I think what it was. Now you say that is, I hadn't realised it until, of course more recent years about flows of compassion it was really about that yeah. how, how care can flow compassion can flow in different directions right especially to the self but very very much between individuals and it was that i think that that notion really snagged with me is is mm. not the missing link but a big part of what was missing oh. i think in more technical or procedural ways that i was doing therapy up until that point yes so yeah. sort of allowed a nice bridge between technique if you like and process so yeah pretty yeah good. no i i i definitely uh, really appreciate that that sort of 
bit of CFT and the contribution there of, of the, the three flows, it, it really does get you thinking differently, I think, you know, with, with clients. So how do you, how has that, how do you now use CFT really with, within your work? And, and I guess you work as therapist, but maybe other things you're doing as well, but yeah, how does, how does CFT kind of feature there? Um, oh. Well, while I was in the NHS, um, we, after the Francis report, which you no doubt will have heard of in the um, uh, 2015, something like that, Francis report came out and was really critical of um, the lack of compassionate care within the NHS. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> so many trusts jumped immediately to respond to this. And I was mm. part of a, what was called at the time, building a compassionate culture within mm. older people's services in the NHS. And that led to us running a, a single day conference to really try and raise awareness. And of course, that was a, another opportunity really for me to bring compassion focused ideas, therapy ideas to a much wider audience. So that was all chugging along in the background. Um, in terms of, uh, oh, I've been doing some staff wellbeing workshops at a local private hospital recently as well. And again, that's about how to bring in compassion focused ideas. Um, but the biggest thing really, um, yeah, I guess has been the um, Fierce Compassion Martial Arts kind of initiative mm. that yeah. Bill Clapton and I have been involved in over the last, well, several years really, but formalised over the last three or four years. Mm. Um, so I can say a bit more about that. In terms of individual work, um, as I said, standard, standard CFT in many ways is the way that I go. I tend to do quite detailed formulation work, um, co-developed formulation, yeah. three circle model all, all the stuff that you'd employ yeah. um but really i think successively trying to help clients take more and more ownership of the process of therapy really mm. um do you, so there's do you, a lot in that what, what would you like to pull out from that are you finding that that you use cft kind of standalone or or do you find that you blend it with other things these days or with the the cbt from the early years and so on um, yeah, it's a good question, really. Pro the blended is probably the answer. Mm. <clears throat> I always feel that everybody's therapy is is quite different. Mm. Um, CFT always features at some level, always mm. at some level. Um, but whether a client seems to respond to a more behavioural approach or a more cognitive um, angles, more reflective, wants to think about their relationships, again, in terms of systemic issues, um, quite often we'll weave in elements of EMDR, depending if that's needed as well for trauma reprocessing. Uh, increasingly doing more and more narrative work as well. Uh, compassion focused, expressive letter writing. I think it's a lovely, lovely evidence base around that, that kind yeah. of approach as well. Um, and elements, dare I say, of motivational interviewing as well, Stan, you know. Oh, very yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. Well, that workshop a few years ago was absolutely fantastic. So, oh, that's um, right. Yeah, that was yeah, yeah, brilliant. That was Birmingham, I think. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, um, again, it really depends on the fit with the client. Um, mm. Mm. I've always disliked this idea that you know some clients or folk we might work with are, are less psychologically minded. I think, well, you know, what do terms like that mean? This person no, might I, not I, get in therapy. I so. Agree. Mm. work harder to try and work out of the different elements that cft and all the other therapies can offer uh, offer where would be the best fit yeah uh, and that yeah. sort of moves me more towards uh more embodied approaches as well which i think uh becoming more interested in lately as well so how, yes. how yeah. to situate the body within therapy that kind of idea yeah yes yeah, so i i um uh, just on the, the blended kind of approach, I, I find that that is sort of often how I'll work as well. And, and but also on the other hand, the, the, the genius of Paul Gilbert in some ways is how he's brought so much different elements of theory and practice together into CFT. Yeah. And, you know, that, that a lot of the, the core behavioral principles or cognitive principles or um, other aspects of, of mindfulness and, and so on are kind of all in there a little bit. And so I, I, I become increasingly finding it difficult to sort of, you know, work out whether I'm doing various things or whether this is what CFT is in a way is, is yeah. a, a really integrated approach that, that, that draws on all of that working with fears, for example, 
is is often you know there might be an exposure element to that you know as yeah. part of cft or something and and that seems to to just um flow really well no oh, and the embodiment stuff is is really great i i I, I'm keen to get to the bit where you might talk about your fierce compassion and, and uh, the martial arts stuff. But um, even for me, yeah, I, I definitely feel like chair work, acting, you know, yeah. embodiment practices, you know, all, a lot of that stuff feels really powerful and important. And, mm. Yeah, I do, I, yeah, I completely agree. Um, and like you, I think I struggle really to see because everything seems to, not everything, but so much of how I think about things now comes through the lens of a compassion focus. Yeah. Then I don't know if you do EMDR related work or whatever, it feels like a much more compassionate form of EMDR compared to how I would have delivered that. I don't know, mm. seven, eight, nine years ago. Yeah. When we talk about doing C uh, CBT elements, it's it's not as if there's a, a separate CBT and there's a separate CFT. CFT seems yeah. to be the best. Having said that, it always feels like it's it's um, quite coherent as an approach as well. I, I don't yeah. I say to people a lot of the time, if you're going to use CFT, you have to really try and embed the ideas into that. So I'm always quite keen, I guess, with that the clients have a good theoretical under, or helpful enough theoretical understanding of what we're doing and why we're doing it. Mm. In my experience, it seems to lead to, to much more effective mm. treatment really, and, and, mm. and uh, a sense of ownership of the help that then continues after therapy finishes. Mm. That's what I'm really interested in. Yeah, and and kind of, you know, that that links to the wisdom, I guess, of of the compassionate mind as well is really kind of having a a good mind awareness and mind understanding and being able to notice the the theoretical pieces, but in that very practical sort of way that then helps us to to de blame and de shame, but also you know sort of make efforts to to manage and and so on. What do you find as some of the challenges with all of that? You know, I mean, we, obviously we've mentioned the fears, blocks and resistances are one of the challenges that, that we sort of like to work with or, and, and through with, with people. But do you find any particular challenges working from a CFT model? Um, uh, that's a good question. So uh, I suppose my go-to there would always be variations on fears, blocks, and resistances, of mm. course. Um, yes. A block yeah. that can come up at times would, I suppose, be around um, different um, different levels of acceptance of evolutionary theory, whether or not that, that mm. seems to chime with people all the way from um, folk who might have... Uh, particular faith views which are fine um, I don't think CFT is necessarily incompatible with those at all I think there are ways of making those those positions work together quite well um, mm. in terms of blocks it's tricky to say isn't it because so much of this we place on the therapy what I've what I've felt is over the years that the more that you do a particular kind of therapy or work in a particular way the more it feels natural and then I wonder if it's about whether or not um you just have a way of working together with clients that allows you to work out where you, the two of you can fit together. And mm. it's less about the model and the approach you're bringing, but more about the way in which you do therapy, which just mm. happens to draw upon those approaches. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if that's very clear, but it's more about it. It feels like it infuses you in a way, you know, it feels like it becomes part of what you do. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. There's a sort of link there to martial arts again, in a way, just in the sense, if you train with people that have been around for a very long time, they don't go and do their martial arts. They just go and train because that's what they do. And mm. when you see them move, it just becomes part of what they do. Yeah. And I suspect folk that do CFT for long enough, for all of us clients and um, therapists as well, that, that issue about common humanity, we get rid of those boundaries and it's just folk trying to live a life that they can that involves suffering in a balanced way that causes the minimum amount of harm to others and themselves. And then then you really start to get into, okay, what gets in the way of that? Mm. Are there kind of structural barriers that are interpersonal ones? Are the ones about belief, mindset, et cetera? Mm. Um, mm. So, so there's a range of different things that get in the way, but overwhelmingly, I tend to find that this, this therapy is really well received. People yeah. like the idea of actually there's a good um, underpinning model and rationale for how we tick that seems to make sense to a, a large number of people. 
Yeah, I, I agree on a few fronts there. That one thing that you, you alluded to MI, motivational interviewing before, and it's funny with MI because sometimes, um, you know, people will watch an MI video, like I, I might do a, a role play or something. And they'll go, well, you didn't even have to deal with any resistance, you know. <laughs> and, and actually, <laughs> the idea is that that as you do the motivational interviewing and you you work in that kind of mode, you, you know, often not a lot of resistance does arise because you know that that's sort of the point or whatever. Um, yeah, and I wonder, know. just as you were speaking, I wonder whether that happens a bit with CFT as well, as we as we sort of learn it and understand it and embody it ourselves, the the conversations. Uh, relatively sort of efficiently or, or, or sort of, you know, it's a light, there's a light touch there that means that there's not, not so much resistance or, or not so much, you know, blocks and fears that, that arise. And it's just because of you're just there, you're just being with the person, you're able to kind of mm. sort of assess at some level where they might be at with this stuff and then kind of try to pitch it. You know, you're not going to push on with an evolutionary model for someone who really, you know, feels that that's uncomfortable for them. And that, that there's a, there is in CFT perhaps, and I'm just thinking out loud, kind of a, a, a nice dance like that, where, where we're just sort of moving with the person and exploring and, and, um, and, and so on. Um, but I agree with you on the other point you made, and, and that is that, um, you know, it's often well received, uh, including by people that we might jump to conclusions wouldn't like it. You know, I, I, my PhD was actually with um, combat veterans with PTSD as well. Um, and, um, you know, sometimes you hear people feeling like, you know, a, a veteran might not like the idea of self-compassion. And, and, you know, they, they certainly don't like to be self-pitying or self-indulgent. You know, they're very keen to, to sort of, you know, with that sense of, of team and, and loyalty and, and so on. But um, with a little bit of discussion, often they they it 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 really becomes clear that that it, compassion is a part of all of that, you know, and and compassion is a part of them, and they uh, quite readily sort of start to take it on board. Yeah, I agree entirely. My um one of my good friends and close colleagues, uh, Leanne Andrews at Essex University, we did our PhDs at the same time, and Leanne's. Mm work was about the avoidance component of PTSD and and she tended to look at uh, for a large part of her work emergency personnel so service mm. personnel ambulance firefighters uh, police um, officers as well and found a very similar thing there's a real real sense of kind of professional identity or armor that goes on and mm. and that's protective in some way and maybe compassion or, or showing emotion to some ex extent as well could be seen as a sign of weakness but once you get beyond that mm. and you get to the the commonality of it then then you can really get some inroads in terms of therapy mm. so i think that these these are just natural blocks that come up anyway probably as part of the therapy process and to me cft seems really a helpful vehicle to explain and talk about these things in a way that makes sense to us all and then decide if we're going to move forward and if so how mm. yeah really as you said beautifully put together idea about the human condition definitely yes yeah so tell us a bit about this, um, the, the, the fierce compassion and, and um, in Yeah, I'm joking. How long have you time? got? <laughs> oh, happy days. So um, I didn't wear the fierce compassion t-shirt and I thought about it, but I thought, no, 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 we're not, we're not, you know, we're not this promoting these ideas here. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's compassion on t-shirt, yeah. Should have put, I should have thought about that. So fierce compassion, martial arts in, uh, where to start? Yeah. So yeah. Neil, Neil Clapton, who you know very well yes. and myself have had many conversations about martial arts over the years at conferences, emails, telephone calls, bars, you know, anywhere. And Neil was really passionate about martial arts as am I. And we put over the years, we kept coming back to again and again and again, there's something about our experiences and training that seemed to help in the therapy space. Mm -hmm. um, not just in a, um, I don't know, not just in the way that you might think, as in therapists are trained in martial arts are, are, are tougher in some ways. It's not about that. It's just the, the, the whole range of experiences within the martial arts seem to be helpful. And we kept talking about this issue and it coalesced into 
let's have a look what's out there. And there's not a great deal. There is some literature on that, but not a great deal. And then we thought, hang on a sec. Um, really what we need to be thinking about is our therapists trained in as an expansive and experiential way as they might be. And that's what eventually led us to Fierce Compassion Martial Arts. So our interest originally was how do we um, embody distress tolerance in therapy sessions, particularly for client anger, although not in any way exclusively. <clears throat> and what we found is um, training around this seems to be quite patchy. It's not something that I felt was explicitly managed in my own training or, or um, post-qualification training either. Mm. So Fierce Compassion Martial Arts is really uh, training for therapists, a series of workshops around how do we take principles and ideas from martial arts and apply them to the kinds of dynamics that can present within therapy um, so that we are able to manage conflict, uh, ruptures, you know, breaks in the therapeutic alliance as effectively and smoothly as we can so we can stay within engagement distance, uh, work through those and therefore hopefully get to therapy in a, I don't know, more effective manner, I guess. So okay. it's about the presence of the therapist expressed through martial arts. Yes. Now that that's... Um... That really, you know, kind of clarifies it for me. It, it's it's using the martial arts practices and and the focus on the body to kind of stay able and engaged in in the therapeutic process, um, whatever starts to develop in in that in that sort of in that process. And um, distress tolerance uh, is so key there, isn't it? Not only for staying present and engaged um but um you know that that's that key part of compassion it's you know obviously one of the, the qualities yeah. of of compassion um can give us a feel for even just a taster of like what what do people experience in a workshop with you like that you know what sorts of things do you do practically there um so, so far, it's a single day workshop. We've, we've got a second day workshop planned as an add on as well. So there's a sort of entry level and then an intermediate and then an advanced level as well. Um, we do a fair amount of teaching about um, to start with about the, the background of all this stuff. So the research that is out there and what it shows. Um, and then when it comes to hands on practices, we will do drills like, um, first of all, there's a lot of you know, laying hands on each other. So there might be a drill where um, there's about finding uh, different people's center and balance. So while somebody might be in a conflict situation, they might be pushing forward, the other person links and then moves back. So you're trying to attune your movement. So mm -hmm. uh, it's called compassion my, so we might do something like that. Mm -hmm. We will do basic stance work as well. So static and dynamic movement drills. So mm -hmm. uh, an embodied stance that feels as though it's grounded mm -hmm. uh, and it can move fluidly if needed. So we do that. Um, the different styles of, martial arts i've trained in a few but uh neil comes from a background in taekwondo which mm -hmm. is much more deep rooted much more it looks more like karate in many ways very strong and i come from a background in wing chun kung fu which is much lighter on its feet much more about connection and sensitivity so we blend different drills from those two styles in particular as well as others mm -hmm. but then give therapists a sense of how you might stay grounded in a session if need be hold ground mm -hmm. and stay with or how you might fluidly stay with somebody if they move away from an encounter. Mm. So we show videos on anger as well. We'll talk about these things. We will do some punch drills as well, some striking drills, and then we'll do drills where we receive an attack in some way and stay with it, but I can't, you can't really see me do it, but halt at the same time. So we stay in the presence of somebody, safely move to one side, halt the attack and reaffiliate. So there's mm -hmm. a process of confrontation and reaffiliation all the time. That's what we're aiming to Oh. To just say that again, process of process of confrontation in some way. There's been a break and then a, an attempt to reaffiliate in the moment right. as well. Love it. Yeah. So a lot of styles would originally kind of break and move away. Now you're in too far a distance to reaffiliate. What we want to do is break and stay to afford reaffiliation all the time. Mm. And the styles that we do lend themselves particularly well to that. And what's the mechanism, do you think, from those practices embodied physically doing them? And then in the chair kind of thing and, and how one can, can sort of stay connected to that sense of, you know, confrontation and reaffiliation. Um, well, the process is a tricky one, really. I mean, um, 
there's a paper that we published last year, late last year, um, radically embodied compassion and how uh, traditional martial arts could be a route into that. And that goes into it in a lot more detail. Okay. Um, essentially, I think it, it's uh, the, the term that's often used is somatic metamorphism, which is a brilliant term. And it really means that the presence or the, the, the essence of the therapist or the martial artist is there <clears throat> such that the other person's um, distress in a way is contained. Mm. So it's contained within the other and it's fed back or it, it's not responded to in a way that you might expect. So I, I'm, I'm frightened by your anger or, or I become hostile towards it. I contain it. And in doing so, we can then stay in a space where we can work with it. Mm -hmm. uh, it to be honest, it's tricky. And I'm not trying to be difficult here, but because it's an embodied practice, kind of need you to experience it so yeah yeah yes yes things we're keen on is there's so much intellectualizing about therapy process we say you know we need to be out the chair yeah yeah we need to be, you mentioned chair work earlier i love chair work absolutely fantastic but we kind of want to be out of the chair work yes you know yeah, yeah, yeah out of the chair work yeah you know sensitivity actually feeling when you link arms with somebody and feel their intention and their force yes very powerful very direct yes. Yes, you, yeah. you get away from the very subtle, you know, with ruptures, you'll tend to get a withdrawal rupture. Somebody might move back, become avoidant in some way or a confrontation uh, rupture. They may become very dismissive of the therapy or, or, mm. or just angry, or hostile in session. If you link with that, again, kind of rolling with the resistance again, one of our papers is called Rolling with the Punches. It's very much a very powerful way of, I think, both de-shaming the experience for the individual but also mm. allowing you to say it's okay whatever you bring we'll, we'll stay with that we'll work with that mm. and that that moment that moment of kind of meeting together in that space that's that's what we're trying to um train if you like or entrain all the time mm. trying to train yes. our ability to stay with that yes yeah yeah it's, it's sort of i don't know if this this is right but it's kind of like this combination of sort of boundaries and yet acceptance and sort of flexibility, but return, you know, sort of, um, again, something of a, a dance, although it's sort of perhaps not the right word with, with martial arts, but yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of that fluid movement, you know, kind of physically and emotionally with the other person. Stan, you're, you're absolutely right. The dances are great. That's a great way to look at it. And we often talk about behavioral synchrony as well. Uh, there's there's oh, yeah. quite a lot of work been done on behavioral synchrony within mm. psychotherapy. And we think that's the process that we're largely tapping into. Um, mm. how, how do we continue to signal the safeness to another person in the context of their increasing threat? Mm. If we can do it, I've seen it done many times in, in a martial arts context. Mm. some of the really higher grades some of the masters some of the really skillful people i've trained with as a, a junior grade or somebody is training with them and training harder and harder they're essentially just staying with it they're perfectly fine my old kung fu master used to say i can take you up through all the gears if you want to there's always another gear we can take you up to if you want but only when you're ready and mm. that ability to manage that dance uh, not to predict, but to just really stay with and fluidly respond mm. to what's going on, to synchronize your behavior to another. Mm. There's something about that that, that uh, is very grounding, really, and it leaves you, I think, much more accessible to the work that you're trying to do with a client. Mm. Mm. Yes, in a, in a recent paper that we're finally getting published, um, uh, we developed a scale, and I did a poster on that one, actually, at one of the CMF conferences, too. But um, uh, it's looking at uh it's taking a motivational interviewing look at at sort of uh change talk in compassion or, or sort of motivation in compassion and uh one of the factors that came out of the uh the scale that was really most predictive of you know outcome kind of measures was distress tolerance the person's sense of confidence or ability to cope and and to sort of stay with the suffering and so on and and that it, it, it i think that feels you know kind of key really in a way because with compassion it's it's to do with suffering and and so at, at every level you know that that ability to feel strong and stable and at the same time flexible and able to move you know is is sort of the distress tolerance bit in a way do, do you see your um radically embodied compassion being something one would offer clients or is it more at this stage uh, a kind of a therapist uh, a supportive approach 
Uh, it's a very good question. Yeah, at the moment, it's still relatively fledgling. And, and mm. you know, the reality is Neil and I have both got day jobs and therefore can only develop this at evenings and weekends and mm. our mitzvahs and children's parties and anywhere we get a chance to, to be honest, you know. Um, but yeah, so it's it's rolling out. Originally, it was to sort of developed for therapists. That's what who we were thinking in mind. Right. But we've had a few inquiries from various different folks saying, where can I access this? Mm. There are martial arts informed um, psychotherapies. Um, there's a nice review paper that came out last year that, that showed you can get a moderate effect size by um, helping clients, you know, engage with martial arts directly. Mm. So whether or not there's a link there between the radically embodied compassion initiative and more mainstream martial arts, I suspect there is, but it will be a few years down the line, I would mm. imagine. Right. We're part of um, a conference, hopefully in the summertime, which I think is being hosted in Australia, actually. There's uh, an amazing um, martial artist out there called Georgina Very, who, who does um, a lot of Muay Thai kind of uh, kickboxing approach. And I think she works uh, exclusively with um, people who've experienced trauma. So in terms of reprocessing the trauma through the body. Mm. Um, so there's a conference about how we unite different perspectives on this kind of theme across the world, really. So that, that would be amazing. So things are being done in relation to this. The radically embodied compassion really springs from CFT and therefore there's no reason at all to think why it couldn't apply to clients. But at this stage, you know, mostly for therapists. Mm. Yeah. Does that mean you'll be in Australia next year or does that mean you'll be on Zoom for that one, do you think? <laughs> no, unfortunately, yeah, it's later on this year. So it's definitely oh. going to be a Zoom job. But uh, yeah. yeah, what we're hoping, though, is um, we have a one day uh, embodied workshop at this year's CFT conference if it does go ahead in October. Right. So uh, Deirdre and Sunil will hopefully be um, presenting and, and leading a workshop on yoga. And the second half of so they'll do the yoga component, and then Neil and I will do uh, an embodied martial arts component as well. So hopefully at this year's conference, um, depending on your availability and if it goes ahead, if you want to come along, you get a chance to actually feel this. Yes, yeah? I think that's absolutely the, the next step for me. I, 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 I worry that uh, we're not going to be able to leave Australia for a long time yet, but um, we'll, we'll definitely see. So one of the things I was going to ask people towards the end of these chats is is just for your sort of top three tips or something I'm not sure whether you can sort of spring to mind with something like this but but what what might be like and and I guess um you know whether it be therapists or just other people who are interested in CFT or experiencing CFT or, or really just on their own journey of compassion and self-compassion what what might be say three things that, that you might kind of flag or recommend or three tips up to three uh, or more. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I remember some time ago doing a training with Paul many years ago, really, and he finished the workshop in that kind of way he does with, you know, sort of saying there's only three things you need to know about CFT, really. Uh -huh. only three things you need to do, and that's practice, practice, and practice. Right. Fantastically, you know, true. Uh, if I were being more specific about that, obviously, <laughs> about engaging in the practice, that's the number one thing. First yeah. thing I'd say is slow down, yeah? The, mm. It's certainly true in my own life and, and many of my clients as well. Yeah many folk full stop i know we're we're, we're quick we live mm. hectic lives so if you're able to slow down in any way to get in touch with what's going on then then that's the number one thing mm. to afford a greater sense of mindfulness so just just mm. be more more mindful of the speed at which you operate mm. what we all do second thing i guess is trying to acknowledge the role of powerful emotions you know don't don't turn away from this stuff if you feel something take the time to sit with it and explore it mm. in yourself um mm. i don't think there's any better way of distress tolerance than just sitting with emotions non-judgmentally mm. um so that's really important uh, i suppose the third thing if there were three would be about your self-narrative as well i think that's um okay. really really important mm. so listen to and guide your self-narrative i've tended mm. to use the term shepherding i don't know why where that's come from yeah. but the idea of shepherding the self, you know just just gently guiding the self as well Mm. Um, I think how we relate to ourselves is absolutely fundamental in all of this. 
Yeah, so we're just saying the third one would probably be about shepherding, really. It would be about really paying attention to your self-narrative, the way in which you talk, conceive about uh, of yourself. Um, and I suppose if there were a fourth one, it would be about better physical self-care as well, mm. really making sure that you look after your body. Slowing down, being with your emotions, uh, guiding yourself through your self-narrative and, yeah, caring for yourself physically. Those sound like for key key aspects i think i i will go away and try to embody them myself <laughs> for this weekend um actually when i think about it that you can see the martial arts really weaves through all of those four now that i stop and ponder it good all right i was going to say it's been it's been great talking to you today really good so thank you for that thank you very much i, I suppose we might actually get those papers off you so I might, or the references at least. You you mentioned a couple of yours and maybe another review as well. That 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 could be uh, really useful to have some links attached um, to down on the the sort of the YouTube page. Um, what about other ways that people can be in touch with you or connect with you as well? Is is are you on various social medias or anything like that that you would be um, you know open to to sort of connecting with people? Um, I, I'm not that present on social media. Certainly, I'm very easy to find on the internet. So I've got a, a personal website about uh, my own practice. Okay. There's a fierce compassion martial arts dot com website as well. Um, there's tons of information on there about what the work involves, Neil and myself. And you can okay. contact me or Nick, certainly contact me on either of those forums. Okay. Um, my direct email is sidhiskey at hotmail dot com. If anybody wants to drop me a line. Okay. Great. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll attach um, a link to the website as well in, in the description on YouTube. Mate, that was uh, that was delightful as I as I knew it would be. I, I, I was very keen to catch you. Uh, we've had some fun conversations, you know, kind of face to face before, but um, probably not to this extent. So actually, it, it was a real joy to to find out more of, of all of your 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 journey here but also your wisdom now so um thank you very much mate thanks for being willing to come on to compassion in a t-shirt in session you're very welcome thanks very much <laughs>